Paul in writing about God's dealings with Abraham in Romans 4.17 said this, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. You see, God knows what he's going to do in somebody, in a life, and he calls it. As Even as he met Peter and he said, oh, your name is Simon, but you're going to be a rock. Now, I think everybody must have been like, he doesn't know Peter very well. This is like the most unstable guy we know. And God says, you're going to be a rock. You're going to be stability. Maybe you remember in Luke chapter 22, he says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked for you by name that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. In other words, he's saying to Peter, yeah, you're going to be shaken, but you're going to come through this because I've prayed that your faith would not fail. And you're going to establish and you're going to strengthen others because you're going to become rock. Na, 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 na. Okay. But God calls into existence. He calls it into. He creates, we're told, from bara. That's the Hebrew word from nothing. When God creates, he doesn't need ingredients. He just makes the ingredients. In fact, it's interesting. I, was, I heard this, this joke, and it was Richard Dawkins recently, which would be about 20 years ago, said that he thought the eye was a very, very simple creation. And if you want to believe that God created it, well, then your God is very simplistic just to create an eye. And somebody said, yes, I'd like to see you do it. And they said, but you have to come with your own ingredients. You know, I know we made airplanes. I know man has made great structures, but they've used the components that God created. Man cannot create out of nothing. He's given supplies to do it with, but God creates from nothing. You see, we're always trying to come up with something to give God to use. Here, God, use this, use that in me. And sometimes he says, I don't want any of those things that you're bringing to the table. I'm going to create out of nothing. And I'm going to speak this into your life. We have the God According to Isaiah 61, who makes beauty from ashes. He makes light from darkness. He creates hope in despair. God calls things according to what he is going to do and not according to their natural condition. I love how when the angel comes to Gideon. Now Gideon uh, was a, a young man in Israel, and at the time that he lived in Israel, Israel was oppressed by the Midianites. We we're told that there was a multitude of Midianites, and every time the Israelites were harvesting their crops, the Midianites would swoop in and they would steal everything, all the grain, and leave Israel with absolutely nothing. And it was during this time that Gideon is hiding in a cave, and he is. He's winnowing the wheat, which means he's throwing it up and letting the chaff flow away and the kernels fall to the ground. Now, 
usually in Israel, this was done on a mountaintop or on a plain where there was lots of wind. But he's hiding in a cave doing this. And all of a sudden, this angel appears to him and says, oh, mighty man of valor. Gideon's like, I don't know who you're talking about, but it ain't me. Have you noticed? We're under oppression from the Midianites. I'm hiding. I'm in one of the least of the tribes of Israel, and we are oppressed. My father worships Baal, and you're calling me a mighty man of valor. Why? Because God knew what he was going to do in Gideon, what he was going to do through Gideon, and he was calling Gideon according to his work in Gideon. When we come to Judah, this man that we've studied this week, his name means praise. This is, this is the name that he is given by his mother who was inspired by the Lord. And yet, as we read about Judah, in the beginning years, the formative years of his life, he seems like anything but praise. He would seem like more, a name that would be better would be maybe embarrassment, <laughs> like Oh, I used to, um, my oldest son was hyperactive and he was always doing those things. Like, you know, he really had um, an attraction to windows and to breaking windows. Didn't matter if they were ours or the neighbors or at the church. He just had this propensity to break windows. And there were just times that you're like, oh, you know, he was the child that always got away from me at the market. And they were like, would the mother of Charlo Broderson please come to the front of the store? And you know, when you're doing that, everyone's glaring at you like, you lost your child. What kind of mother are you? You know, and you're just like, no, why, why do you always do this? He goes, did you hear my name? <laughs> he loved to have his name announced on the loudspeaker. I wanted to get a t-shirt that said, please go easy on him. His mother's not finished yet or still in training. He's now a pastor. God calls it. Praise. Judah seemed like anything but praise. But God was determined to make Judah an object of praise. He was determined to exalt Judah's name in Israel and put him in the lineage of kings and through the seed of Judah bring forth the Messiah. At the end of Judah's life, in Genesis 49, 8 through 12, we see that God has accomplished in Judah all that he said he would do. And yet God had even more for Judah. Not that Judah deserved it. And it wasn't according to Judah's righteousness, but according to what God had worked in Judah. So his father Jacob says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is like a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until Shiloh, he whose right it is. 
That's the meaning of Shiloh. He whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He ties his donkey to the vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. This is the second longest blessing that Jacob gave to any of his sons. The first and longest blessing went to Joseph, but the second longest blessing went to Judah. And if you look at this blessing, there is no rebuke. There is no correction. It's riddled with messianic references. Your brother's praise, Psalm 22, 22. The victor, the hands on the necks of the enemy. The father's sons bowing down. The lion, like the lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter, which is the rule or ability to judge. The staff. Shiloh, or he whose right it is, a messianic name. The obedience of the people belongs to him. Then the word vine and choice vine reminds us of John chapter 15. Donkey and cult reminds us of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem in John chapter 12. Then the wine reminds us of that covenant that Jesus made with his disciples in Luke 22. And the blood that was poured out for us, which reminds us of 1 John chapter 1, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses a man from all sins. And yet this, this man, Judah, who became an object of the greatest praise as he was related to Jesus Christ, had such a poor start. Now, I think his birth must have been really great because he was named Praise. But he was born to Jacob's unloved wife. Jacob had two two wives, Leah and Rachel. Rachel was beautiful. Leah had the weak eyes. John Corson said something that I don't agree with, but I'm going to repeat it anyway. He said that it meant that weak eyes, that it hurt your eyes to look at her. I don't know about some of his interpretations, but I sure like listening to him. (laughs) Leah had so much expectation for her husband. Each time that she gave birth, she was sure that her husband would love her. She was doing her best to be accepted and loved by her husband. Her first son, she acknowledged as a gift from God. God sees Reuben. But she had this expectation, God sees. He's blessed me, so now my husband will love me because God loves me, because God saw my affliction, because God blessed me. The second one, Simeon, God heard me. God knew I was unloved and he heard, so he blessed me with a son. The third son, Levi, means attached. And her her expectation was now that God's blessed me, God loves me, that I've borne my husband three sons, now he'll be attached to me. Now he'll want to be with me. But it wasn't to be. But the fourth son, the fourth son, finally, she's She's giving up that expectation on her husband. And now her expectation is completely on the Lord. And she names him praise. 
I think an interpretation for praise could be, it is well with my soul. Lord, I'm all right. It's all right with us. I think that Leah in so many ways is so much like us. We always tend to think that something that we say or do or accomplish will change a person or circumstances. You know, we get this thing like, oh, maybe they just don't know the truth. And maybe if I tell them the truth, then they'll go, oh, thank you, truth. This is what I wanted. And you tell them the truth and they're like, I'm sorry, I like my lie better than your truth. (laughs) And you're like, what? Or, you know, have you ever made up a speech in your mind? Yes, we have, Cheryl. I knew it. (laughs) Come on. We make up these speeches in our mind, don't we? And we've got it and like, oh, I'm waxing so eloquent in here. I can't wait to give this to somebody. And so you go and you say this huge speech that you've prepared. And they look at you and they go, did, did you just say something? You're like, let me do it again. And they're like, I, I don't agree with that. What do you mean you don't agree? I, I thought this thing up. It took me a full 30 minutes. I had to change some of the words to bigger words. I looked up three syllable things for this one. But you know what I'm saying? We always think that's going to change. Or, or we think, oh, now that I've done this, they'll see that I'm you know, innocent. Or they'll see how much I love them. They'll see. And, and it doesn't change the situation. I, I was um, reading this, this book, and it, it was about this man who, who's trying to win over this little juvenile And he's buying him gifts. He's forgiving him of everything. But it's not changing this child. Uh, And the man is getting so frustrated because he wants this child to change. He wants him to see the love of God. And with every gift, he has this expectation. Now he'll know. And that's so much like us. Now. Maybe because of, again, what I've said or what I've done. or I, I did this accomplishment. I think of those children who, who try so hard to please their children. We had a woman in our church in London, and I was teaching her children, and she had four children, and they were in the Sunday school, and they, whenever I had a craft, these children, they'd never been in Sunday school before. And I was their first Sunday school teacher. They did get in a fist fight with each other one time, and they did steal Jesus from the flannel graph. But other than that, as I was teaching them, they, were, um, they, they just had never heard about Jesus. And I had crafts every week. And they would be so, when it came to craft time, I had them completely in the palm of my hand. They loved the crafts. And they would work so diligently on that. And they couldn't wait to present them to their mother. And I remember she came and they were like, Mom, look what I've done. Look what I've done. And she's like, I do not have time for this. I'm not interested in this. Please, you're bothering me. You're bothering me. I can't take this right now. And I just, my heart broke for those children. And you could just see their disappointment. There is a happy side to this story, but it doesn't pertain to what I'm going to share today. But I'm going to tell you the happy side anyway, okay? Um, this one day she asked to, to speak with me. And I have to say, I had a little bit of like, mm-mm-mm towards her because of how she reacted every time her children would do these crafts. It was just like, I don't have time. And she'd always dress just eloquent, elegantly. I mean, she just was, looked like a million dollars. 
And she said to me, she's like, Cheryl, can I speak to you? And can I tell you my story? And I said, you know, yeah. And we sat down and she told me, I was one of the richest women in Nigeria. I was married to one of the richest men. And she said, I never, ever changed a diaper. I would have the babies and they'd be taken and raised by maids. And they would just be presented to me at meals. And I would kiss them. And then they would be taken away from me again. And she said, my whole life was all about shopping and just self-indulgences, whatever I wanted. And she said, one day I was out at shopping. And she said, my two oldest children were in school and these thugs came to my house and they held it up and they held my husband at gunpoint and pointing guns at my little children and they said you either tell us where the money is or we'll shoot your children and my husband refused to tell them where the money was and they shot my children and they did the children had like a little scar here and and the one little boy had this scar running down like this And she said, so when I came home and I found them shot, my husband sent me to England because they wanted to remove my son's eye and says, no, we need the doctors in England. So he sent me up here with the four children. I got an apartment. I I got the medical treatment for my children. She said, but I'd never taken care of my own children before. And she said, he was sending me money. And then he sent me a letter and divorce papers. And she said, Cheryl, I don't have any money anymore. And I don't know how to raise my children. Will you show me how to be a mother? Now, you know. (laughs) I said, sure. I said, when they show you what they've done in Sunday school, (laughs) tell them that it's the greatest thing you've ever seen and display it in your house. That's step number one. Because, you know, these children needed to be told so desperately that they were loved. And they were doing everything to get their mom to notice them. I'm happy to say that she did. She so changed. But God called it. God called it. And the Lord convicted her. But there are, there are those of us, like Leah, that need to get our expectations on God alone. We expect people to change. And you know what? Most people don't want to change. Have you noticed that? They're very set in their ways and they don't want to change. And nothing we do is going to affect the situation. Only God. Only God. So Leah, finally, her expectation goes off of her husband, off of herself and what she can do, and it becomes on God alone. But again, as we're looking at Judah, he's the fourth son of this unloved woman, but he's one of 11 boys. You know, when you've got more than three boys, you don't notice boys. You just see a forest moving, tumbling, fighting, dust. He's one of 11 boys, and there's stepsons and half-sons and half-brothers, and, and it's just a tribe of boys. And yet, this one, the 11th brother, the first to be born of Rachel is so beloved. Now, if you're a little boy, you're fourth, you're, you're by an unloved mother, and you've got these half-brothers, and you're not really noticed, and you've got this brother who your father just dotes on. 
He absolutely loves. He, he gives him a special coat that's different than everybody else's. And, and to make matters worse, this brother has this, this very righteous integrity and you're the bad little boy that always gets things wrong. And he's perfect and he even has dreams from God. And in his dreams, you know, he's, a, he's this stalk of weed and all the other stalks bow down. He, he's, a, he's a sun and all the other planets, I mean, he's a star in the sky and all the other planets bow down. That's going to be so hard. Hard to see all the love, all the affection, all the respect go to that child. And we're told that Judah began to envy his half-brother Joseph. Now, envy means to covet or desire what belongs to another. It has to do with devaluating someone to the point of feeling more entitled to their blessing, their perks, their position, their possessions, or their prosperity than they are. You believe they should be removed and you should be in their place. In Proverbs, Solomon says, hatred is cruel, but who can stand before envy? Envy is crueler than even hatred when you want what someone else has or what belongs to someone else. Judah's envy reached murderous proportions. While he was out in the fields watching his father's flocks, he and the other brothers saw Joseph, probably they saw the coat of many colors approaching, and they began to conspire together to kill Joseph. Judah, at this point, is totally heartless. He's not thinking of what Joseph's death would do to his father. In fact, when they take Joseph, they strip him of his coat and they throw him in a pit. And we're told in Genesis 42, 21, that they could hear the anguish of Joseph's soul. Joseph is in that pit saying, please let me out. Don't do this to me. I'm your brother, please. And in our text, we're told that callously Judah and the other brothers ate. They ate while their brother was stripped and lying in a pit, begging for mercy. Well, the thought was to kill Joseph, but then they saw some Ishmaelites that were on their way to Egypt. So they decided that they might as well make money off of Joseph. So they sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites. And Joseph went to Egypt as a slave. They devalued Joseph's life. He meant nothing to them because their own value and their own needs meant so much more to themselves, their own self-worth. Then we're told that these brothers took Joseph's coat of many colors and they killed one of the goats in their father's flock and they dipped Joseph's coat in that blood and they presented it to Joseph. <laughs> they presented it to Jacob, their father, and they said, we don't know what happened to Joseph. We just found this in the field. 
And Jacob began to weep because he recognized it as Joseph. And he said, a bear must have killed him. Some wild animal must have taken my son. And Jacob said, I will go to my grave grieving. Later we find that Judah marries a Canaanite woman. And he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. He finds a Canaanite wife for his oldest son, Tamar. But the eldest son is so evil that God takes him out. This son will not be in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Then Tamar is given to the second son because that was a tradition among the tribe of Israel. But the second son does not want to raise up a son in his father's name, in his brother's name. And so he refuses to allow her to have his seed and God kills him. Judah then tells Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house. Keep wearing those widow's garments. And when my son Shelah gets old enough, I'll make sure that you're married. So Tamar is in her father's house. And she's wearing her widow's garments. And she realizes Judah does not care about me. Judah has lied to me. She sees Sheila is grown up. He's married. And she still has not been given to Sheila as his wife. That Judah is going to pretend that she doesn't exist. And just treat her as if she never happened. He has devalued her to the point of non-existence. He is deceiving her. So Tamar hears that Judah, I'll tell you, when I was in junior high, this was my naughty chapter of the Bible to read. You know how you go through those times where you want something that's a little risky when you're that age? Oh, come on, be honest. Well, my risky part was all in the Bible. I would go to Genesis chapter 38 and go, mm-hmm. I got over it. But you know, this, this stuff is real, isn't it? The Bible is so real. It's so authentic. It doesn't gloss over. It tells you exactly what's going on. And we're sitting there going, Lord, this Judah character, seriously, you're going to bring him into the lineage? Look at him. And and Tamar, Tamar, this woman who's a widow in her father's house, she gets mad at her father-in-law, sees that he's cheating her. So what does she do? She dresses like a prostitute and she goes to the field that she knows her father-in-law is hanging out at. She's veiled. She sleeps with her father-in-law. She becomes pregnant. But during their transaction, because she pretends to be a prostitute, she takes his cord, which is like his bracelet, his identity, She takes his signet ring, which identifies him with the family of Joseph, of Jacob. All these J's. Can we just call him J? Identifies him as the family of Jacob. And she takes his staff, the symbol of his authority. And he's supposedly going to find her again and give her a goat in exchange for these. And he goes back to the place where he slept with her and he can't find her anywhere. And then he hears that Tamar 
is in her father's house. She's supposed to be a widow. She's supposed to be waiting, but she's pregnant. I think, you know, she's only three months along, but it's twins. Can't hide twins. Everyone thought I was having twins. Because I look like at three months, I look like I was ready to, to pop. And that was just one baby. I'll never forget. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I'm going to. I was six months along with my first child. And one of the girls in the junior high group, Brian was doing the junior high fellowship here at Calvary at the time. One of the girls had a reflex problem. And she'd been hospitalized. So we went over to the hospital to see her. And they took one look at me. Now, I'm only six months along. And they come running up with the wheelchair. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 I'm not due. I'm here to see one of our junior high girls. And they're looking at me and they're like, oh, no. How much longer? And I'm like, three months. And they're like, is it twins? I'm like, no. Is it triplets? No. It's one. I was huge. In fact, that was like the comment everyone gave me. They'd look at me and they were like, you're um, huge. <laughs> Seriously, can't you find another adjective, anybody? But Tamar probably is huge. She's got twins. She cannot hide it. And so word comes back to Judah. You know that wife of Ur and Onan who's supposed to be a widow? Well, she's pregnant. Now, he had told her just stay in that house. He was going to leave her like that, neglected, not having any children for the rest of her life. She didn't go after another man. She went back to the very family that owed her a husband. So Judah says, take her out and burn her. Burn her. She deserves to be burned, that adulteress. How dare she do that? And then she presents the cord, the ring, and the staff, and said, I am pregnant by the man to whom these belong. When Judah sees these, he confesses in Genesis 38, 36, that Tamar has been more honorable than he. He had not kept his word. He had gone into a prostitute. He had been caught. I believe at this time, the change came in Judah. He's lost two sons already because of their wickedness. And he's having to take inventory of his life. He sold a brother into slavery. Two of his sons are dead. He deceived his daughter-in-law. Then he went into her because he was going into a prostitute. And he said the penalty for what she had done was death. And he realized that he deserved that penalty more than Tamar. Up to this time, Judah has sacrificed others for his ambition, for his fulfillment, for his material enhancement, for his convenience, for his desires. Other people have been dispensable for his ends. But now it's a huge change. He must face his own nature. And he must acknowledge the honor of Tamar, the Canaanite who played the prostitute, who was deceptive. Yet her character and her actions are more honorable than his. 
I believe this is when the change began to happen. Isn't it interesting how the change happens when we see ourselves? When we see our true nature, Jesus said it's not that which goes into a man that defiles him, but that that's already in, in the heart. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's our own hearts that are the problem. It's our own hearts that need the cleansing. It's not the circumstances that have happened to us. It's not the brother that's more loved than we are. It's not the neglect. It's not these things from the outward. It's the things in the inward that defile us. And when we see that inward defilement, that's when change can happen. That's when we can become everything God intends us to be when we learn not to trust in ourselves and in our own natures, not to value ourselves so much, to know that we are capable of such base and deplorable things and that we need a savior. We need a heart change. Judah was further reminded of his own nature in the court of Joseph when he went to buy grain the first time and he saw the prime minister of Egypt not knowing it was his brother Joseph. And Joseph disguised or in his uniform treated his brothers so roughly, asked them pointed questions. Judah turned to his brothers and said, we're being punished for what we did to Joseph. We heard the anguish of his soul and we did nothing. And we see in this instance that Judah cooperates completely with the prime minister, Joseph. And not only does he cooperate, he tells him the truth. He doesn't deceive. He doesn't cover up. He answers every question truthfully. What we see in Judah is a change of valuing himself to valuing others more. When he came face to face with his own nature, he began to value others. Tamar of more value than he was. When we come face to face with our own nature, we begin to value others. You know, in Christianity, the idea is not self-loathing. That's not what God wants. Nor is it self-exaltation. You know what God wants? Self-forgetfulness. That's what he wants. That, that it's not about us. It's all about the Lord and what he wants to do in us. It's all about us being objects that bring God praise. But how do we get to that point? We've got to humble ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, he who exalts himself will be humble, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We need to take a good look at our natural nature. 
and say, there but for the grace of God is what I would be. I would be that. I know how I am. You know, we are we are good. We are nice because Jesus Christ is living in our hearts, making us nice, keeping us from that evil nature. But it's only when Judah began to humble himself that he could begin to allow God to work in his life as he wanted to. Again, the signs of change that we see in Judah now after the Tamar experience is he's willing to go to Egypt to get grain for his family. He's willing to sacrifice himself, take this long trek, go to unfamiliar territory, intimidating circumstances. We also see that he's feeling the recriminations of what he's done. This before was a callous man that could eat while his brother cried in a pit. And now he's feeling the conviction of the spirit. I remember having a young girl say, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm saved? I just don't know if I'm saved. I said, do you feel bad about sin? Yes. I said, then you're saved. One of the greatest signs of salvation is the conviction of sin. Suddenly you feel bad, like that was a little bit of an exaggeration. Oh, I got to set it straight. You ever have that? That's conviction. That means the Holy Spirit's on you. Do you ever think, I could never get away with that? Why? Because you're loved. I have to remember that when I go under chastening, it's because I'm legitimate. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 says. That if you are not chastened, if you can sin and not feel any conviction, if you can lie and not feel anything, it means you're not a child of God. But if you feel that conviction, then you are his child. When I taught kindergarten, we went to the zoo and I had all my students wear red shirts. So I could pick them out on the playground and at the zoo and I could make sure that all the kids I went to the zoo with, I was taking home from the zoo. And I remember watching these these kids get into a tussle and I looked over and I thought, blue shirts, not my responsibility. But these red shirts, I was going to make sure that they were safe at all times. I kept my eyes on them. And if they said something mean to each other, I had to deal with it. I didn't have to deal with the blue shirts, but I had to deal with the red shirts. Why? Because they were under my care. They were my responsibility. You see, when we're wearing the Holy Spirit, we are the responsibility of God. And he will chasten us because we're his children. But he chastens us to make us an object of praise because he's working in us to the end that we might be all that he wants us to be. Again, Ephesians 2.10, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God foreordained that you should walk in them. God is going to make sure that you get to the place that he has for you. And like Judah, chastening will be part of it. But now we see that Judah feels the conviction. There's a change. There's not the callous heart. God says in Jeremiah, I'm going to take out that hard heart they have and give them a heart of flesh, a heart that feels. Maybe before you were a Christian, you said, I was so tough. 
I could go through trials and not feel anything. Now everything hurts. Yeah. Welcome to the land of the living. But God is making you an object of praise just like he made Judah an object of praise. Judah explains their circumstances to Jacob. But again, even though he was treated roughly, Judah, for the sake of his family and for his father, is willing to go back to Egypt, go back to the court of Joseph for grain. And not only that, he has to take his brother Benjamin. And he says to his father, my life for his life. Now we see that not only is Judah valuing another life above his. He valued Tamar. He valued his family's life. He values Benjamin's life above his own. And said, if anything happens to him, my life for his life. If he gets in trouble, I stay in Egypt. He comes back. In Joseph's court, and you probably remember this, that Joseph was testing his brothers and he had his, his cup put into Benjamin's bag and then he sent his soldiers after his brothers and they found the cup in Benjamin's bag and they said, no, we'll just arrest Benjamin. And Judah steps up and says, no, we'll all go back and I will take the brunt of whatever Benjamin's done. Blame me. I promised my father that I would be surety for my brother. And he intercedes for Benjamin with Joseph. And he says, we can't do this to my father Jacob. It will kill my father. It will hurt my father. Now here's Judah who callously way back 16 years earlier didn't care about what his father's reaction would be at the death of his most beloved son. But now we see Judah has changed. And he says, no, I will not hurt my father. Perhaps it was because of the death of his own sons, Ur and Onan, that he was unwilling. I know that pain. And I don't want my father to suffer like that anymore that he's already hurt. Now Judah cares about the feelings of his father. And it's at this point that Judah is ready and able to receive the blessing of God. He is able to become that which God spoke he would be. His life is turned around. Joseph reveals himself to Judah. And Judah isn't, Judah isn't destroyed by this. He's not jealous of Joseph. He's relieved. He's blessed. He's covered. He's forgiven. He's saved. He's exalted. He's fed. He's pulled into the lineage of the king through Perez, the son of Tamar. Sometimes God will speak things to us, maybe a promise in the Bible. And you're reticent to accept it because you're saying, God, the circumstances right now look so far from this. I mean, honestly, Lord, Bara, you're going to have to create out of nothing to make this come true, to make this happen. I can't see this happening. And you're holding on to promises. You're trying to. And you're almost saying, Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. Because 
Sometimes what happens is God gives you a promise and then it seems like hell itself rises up to fight against the very promise that God has given you. Maybe like Leah, you're hoping that something will turn around, something that you do or something that you say, some accomplishment. And finally, you just have to say, you know what? God's got to do it himself because there's nothing I can bring. There's nothing that I can do that will help or alleviate this situation. It's got to all be God. Maybe like Judah, you're saying, Lord, there's not much to work with here. Rather than a cause for praise, things seem to be going from bad to worse. But again, we must remember that God calls things as they will be. Not according to their natural condition. Not according to what you see. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Paul wrote these words. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far greater weight of glory while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Don't believe your eyes. Believe God's word. Believe his promises. Let his promises be your greater reality. God is working through the present things to make us those women that he can fulfill his word, his promises, and his purposes in. But what does it start with? We have to acknowledge our true nature. We cannot afford to trust our own hearts. We can't afford to lean on our own understanding. We have to realize that our fallen natures are capable of far more evil than we realize. And we cannot give in to our nature. We can't. I think I told you before, and I'll tell it really quickly, but being in England, I was, um, the workload had become so hard on me. I was homeschooling all the children. I was teaching Sunday school on Sunday evenings and every other week on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. I was doing two Bible studies on Tuesday, one in the morning, one in the evening. Did I tell you my children tried to fire me? They even signed a petition that I couldn't homeschool them. It's the pastor kid that instigated that. To get the little guys, they didn't even have penmanship down. That's because their homeschool teacher wasn't doing so well. But it was a really, really hard time for me. And, and I remember Brian kept inviting people to stay with us. And a load of laundry took two and a half hours just to wash. I took another hour to dry and I could only do nine pounds of laundry at a time. And I had to go down this steep metal staircase where you had to hold the laundry basket like this and pray that you didn't miss a step going down because it was more like going down a ladder and going up a ladder. Our laundry, our washing machine was up on stilts. So I had to get on a stool. You have to open the door, get on the stool, open the door, get down from the stool, get a load, go up the stool two steps, put it in the washing machine, put the laundry detergent in, close the door, go down, you know, turn it on, go down two steps, and then, you know, up the flight of stairs. So when people would come to stay with us, I measured them by loads of laundry. Oh man, they're like a five hour ordeal. You know, I just, this was it. 
And we were coming off six straight weeks of guests. And I'm trying to homeschool, do Sunday school, do the Bible studies, be the pastor's wife. Plus we had a prayer meeting um, um, for the men and for the women at our house too. And I'm trying to keep everything together. I'm trying so hard. And I keep saying to myself, good little servant, good little servant. You're such a good servant. You're such a good servant. Nobody knows how good a servant you are. So good. And uh, our landlord would come over unexpectedly and inspect the house and then tell me how I could improve on my cleaning. And he would stop in and you never knew when he was going to come. And not only that, I used to make cookies like every other day. He would get in my cupboard, take my tea, sit at my table, eat my cookies and tell me how I could improve my housekeeping. So one day, another guest arrived and I found out that the landlord would be stopping by. I'd done all the dishes. I kept the house clean and I went into the kitchen and somebody had used the blender and left it there for me to wash. It was my, it was my daughter's fiance, Michael, at the time. He's now the son-in-law. And you know what I did? What any red-blooded woman would do? I fell on the floor wailing over a blender. Wailing, literally. And this man is in my living room. And I'm in the kitchen going, ah, ah. Brian walks in and he's like, what's going on? Nobody appreciates me. I'm such a good servant. And nobody appreciates the servant of all. And Brian looked at me and said, you are so in the flesh. And that did not go over well. That made me wail all the harder. And I have to say, I was wailing. I was not going, that's not nice. Or that's not nice. No, I was like, you know, like the woman you hide in the attic. That was me in the kitchen. And this poor pastor that we had never met before, he's hearing this. It was bad. It was so bad. Well, to make a long story short, after Brian took him to a different place to stay, and he explained to Brian that he once felt like his wife should be more of a servant until he found out she had a brain tumor. And then he never loved or appreciated his wife so much. And Brian looked at him and said, well, Cheryl doesn't have a brain tumor. That's where we were. Brian came back because he was convicted and I didn't want to forgive him, but I finally did. And I remember just saying to the Lord, Lord, so unlike me, I'm such a sweet person. I'm such a servant. I do all these things for you. And I just love, 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 love you. So what happened? Who was that person that showed up? And the Lord showed me that I had been eating a steady diet of pity biscuits. Every time it's like, you have to do another load of laundry, you poor thing. And I'm like, catching the pity biscuits, I'm eating them. I'm gorging on pity biscuits. Like, you poor servants, two and a half hours, let's just do the pity biscuits. You know, you had to do the dishes, pity biscuits. You had to teach Sunday school, get three boxes, pity biscuit, pity biscuit. You taught those Bible studies, pity biscuit. 
You're homeschooling your children who don't want you to. Pity biscuit, pity biscuit, pity biscuit. Until I have fed the ravenous beast, the pity monster, inside of me. And he came out. Because if you feed him, he comes out for more. Me hungry, me want pity biscuit. And it was scary. And I remember being shocked by the monster that came out. I wanted to disassociate with a monster, but he was wearing my clothes. <laughs> and I had to acknowledge my nature. You see, within each of us, there is the flesh and the spirit, and whichever one you feed will dominate. You feed the flesh and the flesh will dominate. You feed the spirit and the spirit will dominate. So Judah spent the first part of his life because he didn't know how dangerous his flesh was. So he indulged it. You're jealous, you poor thing. You're the fourth child, you poor thing. Your father loves Joseph more, you poor thing. Pity biscuit, pity biscuit, pity biscuit, pity biscuit. Until he turned into a murderous brother. Pity biscuit. Leaving and deceiving his daughter-in-law. Pity biscuit, pity biscuit. My son's died. Pity biscuit, pity biscuit. Until he realized the monster that he had been feeding was his flesh. We cannot afford to feed ourselves these pity biscuits. God works in us this work of humility by showing us our true nature. This is not just my nature. You've got a flesh and a spirit too. Just don't buy the pity biscuit second shelf from the left-hand side. But humility comes with the evaluating of ourselves. When we get a greater concern for the heart of our Heavenly Father than we do for our own heart, when our concern is about others and their welfare above our own, when we're no longer insisting on our rights, no longer trying to fulfill our own desires, no longer is life about my self-fulfillment or my pursuit of happiness, but it's about pleasing God and serving him. As Paul said, this one thing I do, putting the past behind, I seek to apprehend that for which Christ Jesus apprehended me. When we seek to be that which Christ wants us to be. This is what Jesus did for us. He gave up his rights. He let go of his desires. It was not about his fulfillment, but it was about pleasing his heavenly father. He gave up all of this in heaven to become all that God intended him to be, that men might be saved. He did all this to please his father and to save us. When we devaluate ourselves, when we realize who we really are, then God begins to create and do his best work. When we're not trying to help with the process anymore, trying to throw in something of ourselves, but God is allowed to work from nothing. Bara, this is when he makes worlds and trees and plants and suns and stars and skies and birds. Judah did not deserve God's blessing. Yet when he became nothing, 
God exalted him to the greatest honor of all Jacob's sons. We're so afraid to become nothing. And yet, until we become nothing, we'll never be something. We must become nothing. The blessing and the birthright that Jacob had so wanted, that he had coveted, went to the fourth son of Leah. God has called each one of us to be what we cannot be on our own. He has called each one of us to be objects of praise, grace, and beauty to his praise. Recently, I've been lied about and slandered, and I've experienced the loss of something I cherish. I cherish my reputation. I wanted everyone to know I was a daddy's girl, and I absolutely adored my dad. Never raised my voice to my father in my entire life. You just didn't. He was too sweet. He was too much my teddy bear and my John Wayne at the same thing time. And I realized that for the rest of my life, there are going to be people that will believe the lies, that will be suspect of me for their own ends. And I shared these feelings with someone very close in a text conversation, and I'm going to read you that text conversation. This is me. I, kept, I keep thinking about how I always cherished my good reputation. I loved that thing. Now it's gone. There will always be people for their own sense of security who will believe the lies and hold me suspect. Yet, I am mindful that the same thing happened to Jesus. There are those who would rather believe the lies about Jesus than the truth. There are some who will always hold him suspect. So I am seeking to press into the one who yielded up his reputation for me. This is my friend. Stay close to Jesus today. There is peace in his heart. There is peace in his eyes. There is peace in his presence. Legion terrifies us, running at us from the tomb, screaming. Oh, what happens to the reputation of those who go to their execution with the Lord who died between two thieves? And sadly, I have more in common with the thieves than the Savior, for we are receiving what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Does Shimei curse me? Let him. Perhaps God will hear it and return good to me instead of his curses. Me. Yep, I cared too much about that old reputation. Him. Good riddance, eh? Me. Yep. It was a little too self-righteous anyway. Got on my nerves. Sure makes me willing to go to Africa or wherever else the Lord leads. See, I have this thing. I'd never want to go to Africa because of the snakes. (laughs) Friend, when our reputation is shot and we are no longer concerned with the opinion of others and find that we have nothing to lose, we become truly free to do whatever pleases God. We can then be like children again. Me. Yeah, an emancipation. I am feeling that. Already what Satan means for evil is turning. I needed to realize that blessing today. I don't mind people knowing my real faults because they have them too. But it's those false ones that really get at me. Yet that is where the true emancipation comes. So like God to even use the devil's best for his purposes. Him. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Are you willing to be to the praise of God's grace? Is that what you want? To be an object of praise? 
then we must acknowledge our true nature, that murderous side in all of us. We must pray to value God's heart above our own. And we must be willing to be nothing, that Jesus might become everything. God is calling you praise right now. He's got a nickname for you. Just like he had a nickname for his disciples. We're told in Revelation that he's got a new name for each one of us that's written on a white stone. And no man knows that name. It won't be revealed to you until you get to heaven, but God's already calling you by that name. And he's going to get you there. In Jude, it says, now unto him who is able to present us faultless before the throne of God with exceeding joy, be honor and glory. God is able to make you everything he wants you to be and bring you into the lineage. But you know what? Got to give up that old reputation. Let it get on your nerves. Let it bug you. Be willing to be nothing because Jesus was willing to make himself of no reputation that he might make us objects of praise to God, to the glory of his grace. Let's stand up. Lord, again, these are your daughters. Oh, Lord, we need to acknowledge our nature, that we don't give in to it. Lord, but when we acknowledge it, we are emancipated from it. We're not condemned by it. We're not held by it. We're freed from it. When we just say, Lord, it's, it's ugly in there. And we want you to come in and cleanse our hearts. We want you to come in and do everything that you want to do. Everything you need to do. That we might be to the praise of the glory of your grace. That we might say grace. Grace did it all. Grace worked in us. This beautiful work that we might be to God's praise. Lord, here are your daughters. I present them to you. Lord, they are your workmanship. You care about each one of them so desperately, so deeply. There is not one woman in here by mistake. There is not one woman that you don't absolutely want to make an object of praise. There is not one woman in here who is not a trophy to your grace. So, Lord, I pray that these women would know how desperately they are loved. Lord, as they are encapsulated in love, may they be able to let go of that reputation. May they be able to let go of that thing that makes them think they have to insist on their own rights. That, that part that's jealous or, or vengeful. All of that, Lord. May it dissipate. May it disappear. And may Christ be all in all in our hearts and minds and lives. That we might be to the praise of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.